This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lava. We here at the Word of the Week are picking up right where we left off last week. Hopefully you remember that we kicked off our series about the real-world natural hazards that found their way into various games, especially those in which absolutely everything is trying to kill us. Specifically, we started a discussion about lava by discussing volcanoes and the theory of plate tectonics and dispelling the myth that the Earth's surface was floating on a sea of fiery crimson fluid. It's actually floating on a sea of very slowly flowing, solid, super-hot rock that is a bit like slightly melty plastic whose upper surface is lubricated by small amounts of liquid water trapped in the rock. And all of this was to explain some weirdness about Hawaii's one volcano that looks like many volcanoes, and why there shouldn't be any volcanoes in Hawaii anyway. But since there is, it really should be the tallest mountain in the entire solar system, but it isn't, because of that melty plastic rock lubricated by a very slight amount of liquid water. Remember that? How could you not? It was such a simple story. But obviously the whole discussion of the Earth's mantle actually being mostly solid and not liquid raises a question, does it not? Where does lava come from if it isn't the molten liquid innards of the Earth? Well, it's actually a mixture of the molten liquid innards of the Earth and the molten liquid surface of the Earth. It's what happens when the crust and mantle can actually melt. Because stuff doesn't melt or boil by heat alone. Then again, you might already know that if you've ever tried to boil water for coffee at the top of a high mountain where you've been, hypothetically, coerced into staying in some tiny mountain resort in the middle of nowhere by your family, pretty much against your will, and in spite of the fact that you have a regular game scheduled for every Saturday. But we digress. It's all to do with phase changes and the concept of confining pressure. And to understand that, you have to understand something about the difference between solids, liquids, and gases. Now, we've talked before about some of this stuff, but perhaps a short review is in order. All compounds are made up of molecules, right? And unlike the atoms that make up those molecules, the molecules themselves aren't bound together too tightly, relatively speaking. There are forces that hold molecules of, say, water together in ice, or molecules of silicon dioxide together in a quartz crystal. When something is solid, the molecules are held together nice and tight. That's why solid things keep their shape and don't go oozing around. But if you can break the molecules up enough, they can start to lose their shape and flow, or even just completely fly apart. Now the easiest way to do that is to energize all the molecules. Molecules are pretty energetic little things, and as they gain energy, they shake and shudder and vibrate. And if you shake them up, really get them moving, they will overcome their intermolecular forces. That's why heating something up causes it to melt, and heating it more causes it to boil. The stronger the intermolecular forces, the more heat you need to add to overcome those forces and get the molecules to fly apart. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story, and this is the part that is happening in your mountaintop protest coffee coffee pot as well as deep under the earth. The other part has to do with confining pressure. Imagine you have one of those old-timey blocks of ice that used to be delivered by the Iceman to keep your refrigerator cold. Put it into a safe that's exactly large enough for the block of ice. It's jammed in so tight you can't even get a piece of paper in there. Now, you can heat the whole thing. The molecules will start to get jiggy with it, as the kids say, 
and try to break free, but they don't have anywhere to go. The pressure is keeping them stuck in place. On the other hand, take that same block of ice to a mountaintop. Then things are different. See, there's about 62 miles of air above your head at sea level, and even though you don't feel it, it's weighing down on you. It's squeezing you such that every square inch of your body is fighting under 14 pounds of weight just to keep you in your usual shape. The higher up you go, the less air is pushing down on you. Consequently, the less pressure there is keeping you together. And any blocks of ice your family might be forcing you to carry. The molecular forces holding the ice together are helped somewhat by all that air pressure at sea level. They don't have to hold as tightly. So if the pressure is suddenly released, it takes a lot less heat to melt the ice and to boil the resulting water. Which is why protest coffee is terrible at high elevations, because the water boils at a lower temperature, and you can't hit the optimal 195 to 205 degrees Fahrenheit for a cup of joe, according to the National Coffee Association of America. And we believe them. The point is, the innards of the earth are under too much pressure to melt into a liquid, most of the time. But if there are any sudden changes in temperature and pressure, or other materials are introduced into the mix, well, all bets are off. And that is exactly what happens whenever two tectonic plates meet. There's a lot of crunching and crushing and plates being forced under other plates and spaces opening up and surface elements, including water, being forced down with the plates. And that sort of stuff is always happening around the edges of tectonic plates. Then, what happens is that bits of the tectonic plates and some of the mantle suddenly can melt and form pockets of hot liquid rock under the Earth's surface. And this stuff, the molten rock trapped in underground pockets in or below the crust of the Earth, is called magma, which comes from the ancient Greek word for paste. What happens after that can vary. See, this magma chamber, this pocket of molten rock mixed with water and hot gases buried deep within or underneath the crust of the Earth, the magma chamber is under a lot of pressure. And it is looking to escape. Sometimes it begins to melt its way horizontally through rock strata and forms a sheet of lava called a sill. Sometimes it melts its way vertically through rock layers and forms a dike. Sometimes it melts out a big open space that serves as a reservoir. It's called a lacolith. And sometimes it seeps up through cracks and fissures and makes its way to the surface. And that is when you have a volcanic eruption. And the magma gets a name change. Once it's on the surface, it's called lava. That comes from an Italian word for a landslide that was first used by writer Francesco Serrao to describe the molten rock flowing down the side of Mount Vesuvius during an eruption in May of 1737. Now, there are two basic types of volcanic eruptions, and they vary depending on the amount of pressure in the magma chamber and the amount of hot gas and water trapped with the lava. An efflusive eruption is one in which the magma reaches the surface easily under relatively low pressure and lava begins to flow out of the volcano. These rivers of lava, called lava flows, spread from the volcano. The speed and distance they cover varies depending on such factors as the viscosity of the lava and how tightly confined the lava is as well as the steepness of the land it is flowing over. The most fluid lava flows, which are made primarily of molten basalt rock, can travel up to 6 miles per hour on steep slopes. 
but can be as slow as half a mile per hour over flat ground, and as fast as 20 miles per hour if it's confined to a channel or underground tunnel. And they can travel many miles before they start to harden. More viscous andesite flows only move a few feet per second. Consequently, they only travel a few miles before they start to harden. The thickest lava flows, rhyolite flows, just tend to pile up and form pillow-shaped mounds called lava domes. As the flow continues, it simply causes the dome to swell in size. And these domes can swell to 100 feet thick and can grow over months and years of eruptions, covering the volcanic vent like a shower cap. By the way, apart from the composition of the lava, several other factors can affect the viscosity, the gooiness of the lava, including how much water is trapped inside. As such, scientists not only describe lava by the rock it's made of as above, but also by the thickness of the flow. Awe flows have a crinkly appearance, with lots of dark rock fragments and the otherwise hot molten mass. Those rock fragments are called clinkers because of the sound they make as they tumble over each other, flowing with the advancing front of the molten lava. Pahoyhoy flows are smooth with gentle undulating surfaces and tend to advance as a series of blobby fronts called toes. Their characteristic ropey, pancakey appearance is due to the fact that the surface of the flow has generally hardened into a rocky skin, while liquid lava is flowing underneath. Lava flows are extremely dangerous, even the slow ones. They are inexorable in their advance, knocking over and engulfing everything in their path and igniting whatever they touch. Depending on the composition of the lava, it can run anywhere from 1200 to 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. To put that in a perspective you can easily understand, if you were engulfed in even the coolest lava, you would die. That said, depending on the type of lava, you might be able to get up pretty close and personal with it. Geologists can safely walk up to a pahoyhoy flow of basalt lava and get a sample with a long-handled hammer. But that's because most of the heat is trapped by the hardened skin of the flow. By contrast, ah can be very dangerous. Lots of heat pours right off the surface of the lava and tends to heat the air above it. Geologists standing many feet away have had their hair and skin singed when a change in the wind brought a blast of super hot air from above and off flow their way. And because awe can move pretty quick and change direction, you want to be quick on your feet when you're near such a flow. There are even cases of people falling into lava and surviving. There have been at least two recorded cases at the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory of scientists falling into lava flows. In both cases, the lava was not very deep, and they were dragged out quickly and received immediate medical attention. And they recovered with little lasting harm. But they also got very lucky. Brief contact with lava might just leave you with a nasty painful burn, but the damage depends on the amount of contact and the length of time and it gets pretty serious pretty quickly. At those temperatures, seconds count. Now, as we noted, magma chambers form at the boundaries between tectonic plates when seismic activity causes sudden changes in pressure and temperature and allows rock to melt. And if you connect the dots of volcanic activity, along with earthquakes and other natural disasters, on Earth, you can actually see the outlines of some of the tectonic plates. The most famous such outline even has an appropriate nickname, the Pacific Ring of Fire. This line of seismic activity runs along the west coast of North and South America, then along the Aleutian Islands, 
along the Kamchatka Peninsula, through the Kruel Islands, along Japan, along the Philippine Islands, around New Guinea, and then down to New Zealand. That outlines the largest tectonic plate on Earth, the Pacific Plate, which is gradually sliding from southeast to northwest. And you might have noticed something odd if you've been paying attention. The Hawaiian Islands, which are basically a string of volcanic islands, are right smack dab in the middle of the plate, nowhere near the edges. If magma only forms on the edges of plates where tectonic activity allows the crust and mantle to melt, what's up with Hawaii? Well, to understand how Hawaii happens, it helps to know who Edward Craven Walker was, or at least what he invented. Edward Craven Walker was an accountant. Well, to call him an accountant is to sell him a bit short. He was an interesting guy. He served as a reconnaissance pilot in the Royal Air Force during World War II. After he left the service, he continued flying planes, but also pursued another interest. Walker was a naturist. That is to say, he believed in living a healthy spiritual and physical life, by living as close to nature as possible, with no pesky clothing between himself and the natural world. He established a camp for like-minded healthy nature enthusiasts, with the emphasis on healthy, apparently, as the camp did not permit obese individuals. And in the 1950s, he combined his talent for photography and his naturist leanings and began producing a series of nudist films, including several underwater films. Now, these films avoided the harsh censorship of the time by exploiting a tiny loophole in decency statutes which technically only forbade the display of pubic hair. Therefore, as long as his actors were shaved clean, no problem. But that's neither here nor there. We just use it to point out how a good accountant can find a loophole in anything. The reason Walker enjoyed a modicum of fame among those who have an interest in bizarre trivia about weird novelties and fads is because of the invention that allowed him to found the British lighting company Mathmos. It's a clear glass bottle, heated with a light bulb at the bottom, and filled with colored liquid, and suspended in the liquid, perpetually rising and falling and flowing and oozing blobs of waxy goo. He called it the astrolamp, But due to its resemblance to something else, we know it as a lava lamp, and it is a perfect illustration of the reason Hawaii exists. See, it illustrates the principle of convection. When you have a source of heat at the bottom of a fluid, you'll end up with these rising and falling currents. And you can see them in the movement of the wax in the middle of the lava lamp. When the wax heats up, it melts and rises to the top of the lamp. There, it loses heat and cools, so it sinks back down again. Meanwhile, the heat travels up from the light bulb carried by the wax to the top of the bottle. And if you put something at the top of the bottle, it'd gradually heat up as the wax kept ferrying heat up from the bottom of the lamp. And that's Hawaii, see? You don't? Let us explain. See, the interior of the earth is not heated entirely equally. It's hot, sure. It's hot pretty much through and through. But some spots are a little hotter than others. And deep, deep below the center of the Pacific, there's a very, very hot spot. And you know now that the mantle of the Earth, although it's not liquid, does flow like molten plastic. 
very slowly. So there's a convection current, it's called a plume, that is carrying heat straight up underneath Hawaii. It's so hot that despite the containing pressure, it's melting the crust of the earth under Hawaii. And so there's a giant magma chamber pretty much permanently there, under Hawaii. And every so often it flows up to the surface through vents and cracks. And then you have a volcano. So why are there multiple Hawaiian islands all stretched out in a line from southeast to northwest? Because the Pacific plate itself is moving above the hot spot. The floor of the ocean is sliding over the magma chamber, dragging the islands away as they form. Then weathering erodes the islands and grinds them away. That's why Hawaii, the big island, is the youngest. It's the one that's still forming. The older islands get smaller and smaller because rain and wind scour them away. What would happen if the surface of the earth weren't moving? Well, you'd have the biggest mountain in the solar system. How do we know? Because the biggest mountain in the solar system is called Olympus Mons, and it's on Mars. And it is a volcano located over a similar hotspot, a plume. But Mars's surface doesn't move. There are no plate tectonics on Mars, because the mantle of Mars isn't fluid enough to carry the plates around. And that is because, so the theory goes, the upper layer of the mantle of Mars doesn't have enough liquid water trapped in it to give the necessary plasticity. Meanwhile, Hawaii technically is the largest mountain on Earth. You thought it was Mount Everest in the Himalayas, didn't you? Well, at 29,029 feet, Mount Everest is the highest point on Earth. But if you measure Everest from its base, it's not as tall as Hawaii. Everest gets a lot of help from the fact that it is sitting on a continental tectonic plate. That plate is much thicker and floats much higher in the magma. Hawaii is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Its base is sitting 25,000 feet under the ocean. And since the tippy top of Hawaii's tallest point is 11,000 feet above sea level, that means Hawaii is 36,000 feet tall. Of course, it'd be much taller if the top of the mountain didn't keep sliding away and it had to keep starting again. For comparison, Olympus Mons is 72,000 feet tall. But we digress, back to lava and volcanic eruptions. We talked about relatively tame, effusive eruptions, but when there's a lot of pressure in that lava chamber and a lot of dissolved gas, or when the top of the volcanic vent is plugged up with solidified lava or covered with a cooled lava dome, then you can have an explosive eruption. And those can be pretty spectacular. They can fire plumes of lava, lava fountains, high into the air. They can also launch blobs of hot lava and rock up to a third of a mile away. Those heavy, high-speed projectiles can be several feet in diameter and are very dangerous. Those are called volcanic bombs. And eruptions can spew clouds of ash into the air. Those clouds can get caught in upper-level prevailing winds, spreading over hundreds or even thousands of miles. But possibly the most dangerous of volcanic hazards are lahars and pyroclastic flows. A lahar occurs when lava from a volcanic eruption encounters snow, glaciers, or even just large lakes. The snow melts into water, which mixes with the lava and soil and debris to create a fast-moving slurry of volcanic mud. 
Those flows can race down mountainsides between 20 and 60 miles per hour and bury anything in their path. In 1985, in Colombia and South America, a volcano named Nevado del Ruiz erupted. Mountain snows and wet soil from recent rains mixed with the lava and debris to form a lahar that swept over the city of Armero. 23,000 people were buried alive, and much of the city was simply gone, buried under 16 feet of volcanic mud. An empty field of mud remained where 20,000 people once lived. Pyroclastic flows are just as fast and can be just as deadly. They occur when ash and volcanic gases mix with lava into a sort of thick, dense cloud. Not quite a solid, not quite a gas, not quite a liquid. They generally occur when a volcanic eruption sort of collapses in on itself, so that the explosion races outward instead of upwards. Usually this is because a lava dome collapses during an eruption, or because a massive cloud of volcanic ejecta can't get clear of the eruption and falls back in on itself. Then you get this massive, scouring cloud of lava, poisonous gas, rocks, and debris racing down the sides of the volcano. The massive, dark cloud can move up to 50 miles per hour and is powerful enough to shatter, bury, or carry away just about anything in its path. The cloud is intensely hot between 400 and 1300 degrees Fahrenheit. The gases contained in the flow are usually lethally poisonous and pyroclastic flows can cause lahars if they encounter snow or water. Compared to lahars and pyroclastic flows, goopy flows of slow-moving pahoyhoy creeping slowly across the landscape and shimmering pools of awe glowing red in the distance don't seem nearly so terrible. They seem almost survivable by comparison. And with horror stories like cities being buried or scoured off the map by a poisonous death cloud, we're kind of glad video games just stick with pools of red, bubbly liquid that will only hurt you if you miss a jump or dig straight down. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.